I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, hi everybody. I think I'm going to have to do for this person. I don't know, for some reason I can't seem. Oh, there it worked. Okay. All right. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Marlene. Okay, sorry, it's a little confusing how I'm set up here. So, <laughs> all right. Anyway, I was just reminded by my son who made a seum last night that it's my Bubby's yort site today, my mother's mother. Her name was Nechama Bas Hansia. Actually, you're supposed to say the father's name. Nechama Bas Hirschleib Wolf. And she lived to be 101. She was very vibrant. She lived on her own in, in her 90s. Um, she was wonderful. She, she loved poetry. She loved writing. She loved anything to do with literature. We used to joke that if you used the washroom in her place, you didn't come out for two hours because there was so much to read that she pasted on the walls. <laughs> All these wise sayings about how to live. And um, even if you got out of the washroom on the way back to the living room, the entire hallway was full of more, you know, wisdom for living. So until you came back, everybody would be like, where were you? But anyway, um, she was a great inspiration to me. She left Russia before the revolution in 1917 with my Zadie. And um, her claim to fame now that really fascinates me, which she never spoke about much, I guess she was afraid, is that she actually was first cousins with Leon Trotsky. Yeah, her name was uh, Naomi Bronstein and his original name was Labela Bronstein. And I have pictures of the two brothers, very religious looking, including Leon Trotsky's father. And there's one of them actually in their talus and tefillin with big kippahs on their heads. And on top of the picture, it says, <laughs> So I guess she never talked about it because of the Russian mentality of fear that that was not something you wanted people to know, especially in Russia. But my sister always says that all she had to say about Leon Trotsky was, he was a no good Nick. He was a no good Nick. Anyway, Bobby, I love you. And this class is for you. It's also a class for the successful surgery in Rafua Shalema for Tema Devorah Bas Lea Mila Chava. A Rafua Shalema to Henya Yehudas Bas Chana Chaya, both students that come on regularly. 
should be a refuah shalema for Chaya Nechama Edel Basara. And so many other people who are suffering either from Corona, from other kinds of viruses that are going around or just general difficult and challenging situations, which I don't know whether it's because I'm older, I don't know whether it's because of social media and uh, communication today, but it seems like it's a plague. <laughs> and uh, so many people are suffering in so many ways. And so I'm going to sort of deviate a little bit from our topic today, but also include it. And I'm going to try and address the challenging subject of suffering. And I hope that uh, you will benefit from it. And um, <clears throat> it's just a cursory look at it, but uh, I think it's something that hopefully will give us all chizuk, a little bit more clarity. So that when in times when we're not suffering, it can prepare us to have the proper hashkafot, the proper glasses to wear, if God forbid we go through anything. But um, <clears throat> Before we get to that, I just want to talk quickly about the fact that we have basically finished our explanation and understanding of the four elements. You know, again, only in one kind of a perspective. What we did is we went through the Chumash and we showed how the elements of earth, water, wind, and fire are right there at the beginning of creation when God creates the world. And we said that when God said, let us make man, there's a commentator that says that he was talking to the elements, saying, let us make man with the elements, with the four elements, composed of also earth, water, wind, and fire. And then we said that the four stories, the four main stories of the Torah after the story of the Garden of Eden, where, by the way, um, and we're going to go to this in the suffering part, you know, every single soul that would ever be created in the world was there inside the great souls of Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava. They were a composite of all of the neshamas that would ever come into the world. We're all splinters. We're all splintered from those two people, which was why we can't even begin to understand their greatness. When the Torah teaches or the Medrashim teach that Adam could see from one end of the world to the other, or that bodies were covered, the Kabbalah tells us we're covered with nails, and all we have left are the nails at the end of our fingertips, that they shone, okay? Uh, we can't even imagine who they were, but if we could imagine that every neshama ever born into the world was in Adam and Chava, we, you know, we have to imagine that as, you know, whatever person you imagine as being the greatest person you ever met, or, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu, or anybody in the Torah, we're talking about a creation that was the entire world in terms of neshamas inside those two people, okay? So why am I mentioning that? Because that's the first story that the Torah begins with. But then it talks about the splinters of these souls after the fall, after we leave Gan Eden. And again, just to review quickly, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Hevel is a story of the earth element, right? Cain is a worker of the earth. He has the earth mentality. And we said in the negative, it's the scarcity mindset. It's jealousy, it's acquisition, material. It's that primal instinct to survive. And he kills his brother out of all of these different 
things that are going awry in his earthy element. And of course, his punishment is to wander the earth. So it seems pretty glaring and clear that that is the story of the earth element. <clears throat> um, and then we have, of course, the story of Noah, and that's water, and that's pleasures and illicit relationships, and all kinds of addictions and things like that that happen when a person doesn't know how to master their water element. And it ends in the flood, Mita Kenegad Mita, measure for measure. They're destroyed by water. <clears throat> then we have the story of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel, where they build this tower to fight to get rid of God, so to speak. They were the element of wind, uh, the element of speech, the element of thought, uh, intellect, right? Something that is makes human beings uh, unique, that we have this ruach mamalale, this speaking spirit, this articulate speech, this brain that's very much developed, right? And then fire, of course, is the story of Sodom, and they are destroyed by fire. Sorry, the people in Migdal Bavel are destroyed. They are scattered by the wind, right? God doesn't destroy them because they're unified, but he scatters them like the wind so they can no longer have their plans to, so to speak, get rid of God or the God consciousness in the world, which is what they wanted to do. Um, and then, of course, we have the tikkun for these four elements, which come with the stories of the avos and the imahos, the yesodot, the foundation stones of the Jewish people, beginning with Avram and Sarah, the tikkun for earth. And I want to go back to earth because we're in the month of Teves, which has the earth element in it. So there is an idea that rabbis teach us, there are certain sages that teach us that if you want to work on yourself practically and tap into your own elements, a great way to do it is depending on which month you're in, if it's an earth uh, month or a water month or a wind month, air uh, month, then work on those attributes of that element which we all have whether or not it's your predominant one or not we all have all four of them and they all intersect with each other so the earth elements um just quickly we said with Abraham and Sarah I'm going to say this now the earth element right in its positive form is somebody who's well grounded who's organized who's dependable and consistent who likes rules and structure. But as we said, the negative aspect of earth is stubbornness, being inflexible, being meticulous or set in one's ways. Actually, this is a little bit new. But we spoke about the idea that earth, really the earth element is connected to sadness, right? The heaviness, the physicality of a human being, it pulls us down, gravity pulls us down depression and jealousy and just you know to review this a little bit we mentioned it in previous class Abraham and Sarah come and teach us how to move out of this pull that the earth element has on the human being who was created from the earth right we're a dichotomy we're created from the earth very very physical material we go back to the earth we're Adam because we're from the Adama, but we also have this incredible soul within us 
There's different levels of the soul. There's four levels of the soul that we talked about a little bit and even a higher soul than that. But these four levels represent the four elements. And we said the word Adama, earth, can also be read Adama, which means I am similar to, meaning I'm similar to God. I was created in God's image. I am this dichotomy of this very earthy material, uh, physical home air that just is going to go back to the earth from where it came from. Hence the reason for Jewish burial and not cremation, God forbid, right? The earth returns to where it came from. And then, of course, we have this high and holy neshama, this peace of God, so to speak, that seems to be the complete antithesis of earthy and physical that we also are composed of. So it's where the, the, the soul and the body meet, so to speak, within the human being. And that's where the struggle begins. Who's going to be the master? Is the body going to be the master and tell the soul what to do, so to speak? Or is the soul going to tell the body what to do? The body is just the wheels. It's just the vehicle to take the soul around, right? It's just our wheels. After 120 years, we no longer have our transportation in this world and our soul flies back up to where it came from, to Hashem. And the wheels, our body, our transportation goes back to the earth. But the more that the soul is in control of the body through the mitzvot, through the Torah, the more that you can actually elevate the body. And even the very physical, which we know is a very Jewish idea, the very physical and the most physical, right, aspects of life and even death itself can be elevated, can be made spiritual, which is what we do every time we eat. Before we, make a, before we put it in our mouth, we say a blessing. Eating, which is one of the most mundane things that human beings do. Cows do it, right? Uh, grasshoppers do it. Everybody does it, but only the human being can think, can use his intellect and his free choice and connect it back to God and say, where did this come from? Who's, who's keeping me alive? Why am I alive? What am I doing on this planet? What's my mission? To elevate the physical world and elevate myself in the process to make my not only my soul shine and reflect that Selim Elohim, that godliness, but even to take my body and bring it into the service of my soul. Okay, we're going to talk more about this. But the month, uh, the, 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 the tikkun, or the um, example for us of those who were able to um, channel the earth element were Avraham and Sarah. Remember, we said that. And just quickly, we said that we learned from Avraham and Sarah. Number one, to move with enthusiasm. Teves is the darkest month of the year together with Peacelade. It's hard to move. It's hard to get outside if you live in Canada or any place where it's cooler, Right. It's prone to sadness and sluggishness and depression because there's no light. 
right? I told you I got out the Costco, uh, the Costco light. Doesn't work for me. Anyway, whatever. It's supposed to work, you know. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, everything Avram and Sarah did, they did it with Zerizos. Remember, we did a whole series on alacrity and enthusiasm. You know, they're always running like Edith Bunker in the sitcom. She was always running, right? Whenever anybody knocked on the door. Coming! Coming! Right? Anyway, that's the image, right? It's alacrity. That's, you got to move, you can dance, you can, you can put on music, but that's one of the ways that we counteract that earthy part of us, the month of Teves, that wants to pull us down, make us sad, make us depressed, anxious, worried, all those things that are the earth element. The second thing we learned from Avram is to set a schedule, have a routine that helps right? Get up every morning and pray. Do something every morning physically or whatever. Stretch. Have a routine. It fights the earth element. The third thing we learned from Avram connected to that is he used to wake up the morning. He woke up early. He's the one who instituted morning prayers, right? Shacharis. Each of the Avot instituted Shacharis, Mincha, and Mari, okay? And the last thing, which is a great thing to practice in this month, is to counteract the scarcity mindset, a, ter a psychological term. Avraham and Sarah were the epitome of the abundance mindset, or in Jewish terms, we would say the emuna mindset, right? Hashem is my sugar daddy in the sky. He can take care of everything. So the idea here is to be generous to go beyond what you normally give, you know, where, where you come to that edge where you say, oh, oh, I can't afford this, or, you know, that's, I don't want to spend. And of course, this is, you know, if you're already a spendthrift, be careful. But, you know, if you're always, you know, sort of holding back. So this is the month where you can say, you know what, it's just money. Let me spend that extra 20 bucks. Let me spend that extra 10 bucks for this present for my friend. That feeling of largesse, that feeling of expansiveness, and that emuna that, you know what, if I'm using my money to make other people happy, if I'm using it appropriately, God's going to send me some more. He's going to fill up my coffers. The abundance mindset, the four doors that were wide open on Avraham's tent saying, come in, let me give you a hug. And it doesn't have to be money. It can be giving your time, calling somebody. It can be giving your talents, right? It doesn't have to be financial. But just pushing yourself to open that door to greater expansiveness of yourself in whatever area it is that you enjoy. You know, you naturally love to do for other people. So push it a little bit more. Do it a little bit better. Find a new way of understanding what another person needs, right? Surprise somebody with a gift or a note. Make their day, right? Okay, we started late, so we've got a lot to talk about. So going back to this month, and I'm not going to go into the month too deeply because there was really just one part of the month. Actually, you know what? I'm sorry. Before we start talk about the month. No, no, I will talk about the month. Okay. Um, 
there's a lot about the month, but the one thing that really strikes me about this month, which is unusual, and it's the only place in the Jewish calendar that we have this, he slave and Tavis, the two months that we said are the darkest months of the year, he slave is the month that has the holiday of Hanukkah in it, right? And Tevez is a month that yesterday we just had a fast day. Tevez is considered really a very sad month. It says here in Rabbi Boxbaum's book, and I think I read this to you last week, this month comes at the heart of the cold and dark winter. It's also considered the third sad month and contains a fast day, which was yesterday, for the siege on Jerusalem. The dark symbolism of this month is connected to the struggles of the element of earth, which is sadness and sluggishness. But the amazing thing that Rabbi Buxbaum points out is that as sad as this month is because of all the terrible events that happened in it, okay, we, 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 we fasted yesterday, but there were other dates in Teves leading up to the 10th day of Teves where terrible things happen. The rabbis just said, let's put it all together in one day, right? We're not going to fast all, all month long because of these different things. I'm not going to go into what they are. You can Google what happened on the 10th of Tevez, okay? I'm sure h.com has a wonderful article by Beryl Wine, Rabbi Beryl Wine, about what happened. But the point is, is that um, it's fascinating that the truth is we don't think of it. But there's a holiday in the month of Tevez. And the holiday is the month of, is the holiday of Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah begins in Kislev, but it's the only of all our holidays that actually spans two months. It goes into the next month. Not only does it go into the month of Tevez, which had all these different tragedies in it, but it goes into it with seven candles. Seven lights, right? The menorah is almost completely lit. We're at the height of the brightness of Hanukkah. And of course, there's a cumulative uh, experience of each night adding another one and another one and another one. The way Hillel told us to write, light, I'm sorry, Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin. And um, so it's like the light of Hanukkah spills into this dark, dark, tragic, if you like, month of Tevez, where the Beit HaMikdash was, it was the beginning of the end of the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, and the Jews were going to be exiled. Okay, that was the main thing that happened. And even the, 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 the name Tevez, it actually has the letters of, this, of the word tov in it. Good. So the rabbis are telling us that as dark as this month is, and as, as much as there were tragic or difficult times, challenging times for the Jewish people, first time that were exiled and thrown out of the land of Israel, right? And everything that accompanied that exile by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. We became slaves. We lost. Can you imagine? We were really, you, you know, the world leaders at the time before this happened. Uh, 
The Beit HaMikdash was somewhere that all the great kings and princes of the world would visit, King Solomon. And, um, and yet we have in the, in, in the word Tevez, we have the word Tov. So what I want to focus on, and, and another thing is that the zodiac sign of Kislev is the bow and the arrow. So think about Hanukkah, so to speak, the lights of Hanukkah, right? What does a bow, what does a, an arrow do? What does a bow and arrow do? It shoots something forward. It catapults something ahead. So this is what Hanukkah is, right? We have Hanukkah and Kislev, but it's being shot, so to speak, into this dark and tragic month of Tevez, the lights of Hanukkah. It spills into the month and shoots light into the darkness of Tevez. So what might this light be? Well, we know that this light is a very, very powerful light, right? We know that it beckons back to the first 36 hours of creation where God created the world with this light, but later hid it. He hid it after 36 hours because of the sin of Adam and Chava, and because of the idea that this light was so powerful that the Rishaim, the wicked people in the world, would use it in a very detrimental way. Listen, even without this light, we can see how the Rishaim use the world and its light in a very detrimental way. But God hid this light, we're told, in the Torah, in Olam Haba, and in the Hanukkah Menorah, right? There's 36 candles that we light by the end of Hanukkah. So this light spills into Tevez. What is this light? So I want to talk about a different aspect of this light. And this is where we're going to talk a little bit about suffering. Okay. Now, I've given a class on the topic of suffering many years ago. I didn't dig into those notes because I'm not going to do, at this point, a whole series on it. But I just want to give you a taste based on Rabbi Buxbaum, who also in his book, actually under the element of water, talks about suffering in Judaism and gives us some ideas about it. Um, but before we even go there, the very Jewish idea that many rabbis have written about, including Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, is that the Jewish people gave the idea of hope to the world. Our entire survival, the fact that we're still here, we're like the poster children for the word hope, right? That no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much it looks like the moon in the sky, that it's going to disappear, right? That little sliver of moon, which the Jewish people are compared to, it comes back again in full vibrancy, representing the Jewish people and their indomitable spirit, their incredible emuna belief that as bad as it gets, there's always hope. Hashem can turn things around, in the blink of an eye, in an instant. It says that's how Mashiach is going to come, in the blink of an eye. And I think about it sometimes, I think I've said this, when the weather changes radically, you know, you're outside and it's sunny and you're walking along going, hey, what a beautiful day. And then the next thing you know, it's hailing, you know, or there's a windstorm and you're like, whoa, 
Now the weathermen can say what they want. To me, it's like, that's how quickly Hashem could change everything. As we know he did with the coronavirus, as we know he did with that tiny little bug that shut down the entire world. All of the hubris of man humbled by a tiny little bug. By the way, I always love to liken the demise of the great general Titus, who was responsible for the destruction of, I believe, maybe the first or second temple. Gamara says that how did Titus die? This great general who destroyed the, the temple? A bug flew up his nose and lodged itself in his brain and created a tumor so large that it talks about how the only relief Titus could get from the buzzing in his brain was if somebody banged with a hammer on something very hard, like a workman or something, then the buzzing would stop. So he would have to have this person hammering all day long to have relief. But he eventually dies from this growth in his brain caused by this mosquito or something like a mosquito. Again, another example of Hashem saying, I can take you down in an instant with nothing, with all your power, with all your intellect, with all your might. And, you know, we've experienced it as a world today. We still don't know. We still don't understand it. We still don't get why some people get it. Some people don't. They get it this way. I get it that way. You know, the vaccines, no vaccines. It's all so confusing. This opinion, that opinion, people fighting over the vaccines in families, right? And we know that God wants peace. Peace is more important to Hashem than even truth. The beautiful medrash that says God throws truth down to the ground and says, as much as I want truth, peace is even more important. Peace is what I value. Shalom, shlemut, completion of a human being, which will bring peace to each other. But what I want to talk about is the idea that we have to search for the light in the darkness. In other words, we have to believe that, there's that, that in suffering and pain, there is purpose. We have to bring this spiritual light, these 36 hours of light. We have to bring that spiritual light into the dark places by understanding suffering better. So how does adversity and pain play a role in our life's mission? Now, let me make this clear. There are no words and there are no philosophies that can ever ease the pain of someone who's going through a difficult or painful situation. That is not the time to start telling other people, people whose parents went through the Holocaust, people who themselves might have gone through the Holocaust, or any other horrific experience that we cannot imagine. 
That's not the time to start pontificating and preaching and telling them, well, you know, it's really your soul suffering and it's not, and it's for the next world and it's, and you know, God is good, etc. But when times are good in our own lives, it's important to know what Judaism thinks about, what Judaism's opinion is about this world, the next world and suffering, because all religions have their, you know, philosophies about it. And of course, much of it is from Judaism and some of it, you know, they just added their own other ideas that we don't go along with. But what I'm going to teach you now is that, and to try to shed a little bit of light about what pain and suffering is all about, the sages teach us that there's two categories of suffering. Okay, number one is suffering as a wake-up call. That God wants us to be growing. He needs us to be growing. You know, human beings have a desire to grow. The same way that flowers will bend their heads towards the light, right? You have a thing of tulips in your vase and they're, stretching their necks, right, to get closer to the light, that's a human being's natural position, unless we get, uh, what should I say, burned, unless we get dejected, unless we get, or we don't know, we don't know that that's what the light's for. So suffering can be a wake-up call. Hashem needs us to be growing. That's what we're in this world for, to realize our mission, to realize our purpose, our task, based on our very unique constellation of traits, which we've talked about, both positive and negative, your home air, and completely individual, the way no two fingerprints of a person are the same. Every person on your birthday, we can celebrate the fact that God brought you in this world because he felt you had to be here in this generation, at this time, to these parents, to rectify and fix what your little job is. And to return to Hashem after 120 years and say, I tried. I was on the case. I don't know if I was successful but I was working towards it. I was trying to be better. I was trying to master those elements inside of me and channel them towards goodness and godliness, making my neshama master over my body, right? Through learning Torah and understanding that's what the mitzvot are for, to give the soul exercises so that it can strengthen itself and be master over the body, right? The second reason we have suffering in this world is something that we call suras or yisurim me'ahava, suffering that comes from God's love, because he loves us. And of course, the reason for why God would give us suffering out of love is beyond our comprehension. It doesn't feel good. We might intellectually know this, that these are love taps, 
you know, as my mother would say, here's a little love tap and she'd slap me across the tush or something or, or a little light one across the face, you know, you remember that, right? How about a little love tap, you know? <laughs> anyway, this is what Hashem is doing. You know, my son says his Rosh Hashiva does that to him a lot. You know, when he's walking by, he gives him a little one of these. And he says, I love you. I love you. Okay. So that's the image of the suffering that comes from Hashem's love. We don't really understand it. But if we can approach it in that way, we can say, listen, Hashem, stop loving me so much. You know, why do you love me so much? Stop it. Stop it already. Go love somebody else, right? Anyway, yeah. So let's look a little more deeply at each of these, okay? So basically, Hashem throws us a curveball. We all have curveballs in our life, and they're there to shake us up. They're there to let, to let us know we made a wrong turn, or maybe that we should be doing more. Because we know that when everything's going smoothly, we become complacent with who we are. I'm good the way I am, right? I was born this way. What's your excuse? This is good enough for me. I'm not growing. I'm not climbing. I'm okay. You're not okay, right? Or even if it's I'm okay, you're okay. It's a complacency. So we get complacent with who we are and what we have accomplished. And suffering can be a nudge, a nudge. Stop and think, God is saying, are you really living up to your full potential? Are you hurting people? Are we hurting other people? Are we fully honest? We're supposed to introspect. We're supposed to ask ourselves. You know, even when it comes to a limb that was damaged or hurt, what am I doing with this limb? Am I using it? Am I going places? Let's say I stub my toe, right? This can be small sufferings. We said if we wake up with the small sufferings, then God doesn't need to send us bigger ones. Oh, I stubbed my toe. Gee whiz. You know what? I really should go visit my Auntie Connie today instead of, I don't know, going shopping at Yorkdale. Which would be a, a, a greater soul uh, activity, right? If I'm, let's say, having a conflict between the two. Maybe my stub toe is there to remind me, walk to your aunts, don't go to your Yorkdale, right? Whatever it is, I'm giving, you know, an example. And even if we can't find any reason, right? Hashem, I don't know. I'm, I'm doing everything good. Why, why is this happening? What are you sending me this, this suffering, this wake-up call? It could even just to be to say, whatever you're doing, whatever mitzvah you're doing, do it a little better. Take on a little more. If you're not doing a mitzvah, you know, then maybe take it on, right? You light candles, you light Shabbos candles. Well, why don't you light them on time before Shabbos starts? Not three hours after Shabbos has started. And instead of doing a mitzvah, guess what? You're actually doing an Avera, right? But people feel like I'm doing something great. You know, hey, look at me. So we don't know, but we all can, we can't tell another person 
what it is that they need to do. Only we can introspect, and God sends us a curveball as a nudge to say, examine your deeds. What could you do better? What can you give me? Just give me a little bit. Open up your heart, the point of a needle, and I'll open up to the size of a ballroom. Just give me something. I want to see you growing. I want to see that you're different than you were yesterday or the day before, right? It's like story of the man we got sitsits when he was four years old, right? Or three years old at his upshare. And he got these tiny little sitsits with choo-choo trains on them, right? And I don't know, the story goes that he's like now in his 50s and he's somewhere and he takes off his shirt and he's still wearing his sitsits that he got at his upshare, you know? Yeah, but that's us, right? We get complacent. We rely on the things that we're already doing or we feel like, you know, we're Joe Jew about, you know? But God says, come on, come on, get a new pair of sitsits. You're not four years old anymore. You're, you're, you're an adult, you know? You still think about God with a four-year-old mind? You still relate to God with a four-year-old mind? You're 45. Have you done any reading? Have you learned anything new about God since you were four? You know, like I always say, the, the book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, the same way we can learn to be artists, even if we don't think we have an artistic bone in our body, right? The premise of that book is that you can learn to see the way an artist does. You can learn to use the right side of your brain. And by the end of this book, they're all drawing these incredible pictures. So too, we can have these ideas about God and, and religion and Judaism and everything that we fixated on when we were young, when we were little, when we didn't have the intellectual capacity to question. And unfortunately, how many people's growth is stunted in those early ages because God forbid they had a tragedy in their family God forbid they lost their mother when they were two years old. God forbid somebody taught them something heretical in Hebrew school. But we have minds. We're supposed to explore with our own minds. What are the answers? What are the truths? Who is God? Why does he bring suffering? Why is there suffering in the world? Oh, boy, I better get moving here. Okay, so even if we can't find any reason, we're encouraged to take on something spiritually, another mitzvah, or the same mitzvah done better. And the truth is, is it's difficult to accept. People don't like to think, oh, this happened because God is punishing me. No, he's not punishing you. He's trying to wake you up. Wake up you slumberers from your sleep. Wake up and check your deeds. Like the Rambam tells us about the sound of the shofar, right? It's an alarm clock. So too are things that come in our day. If the bank closes, you know, we've talked about this Rosh Hashanah time. If you're late for that appointment because uh, some car accident in front of you. No, ideally your day is supposed to be perfect. If there are any glitches in it, use it to grow. Use it to say, maybe this suffering, whether it's big or small, is actually going to bring out some beautiful aspects 
of my personality if I take it up to God, if I connect it to God? One second, I think. So number one, pain deflates ego. It allows us to make space for God. Our inflated ego pushes God out together with all of our other character flaws. Our belief in ourselves, which we spoke about, my strength, the power of my hand did this, my smarts, my, my talent, my money. That's what got me to where I am. I'm a smart guy. I'm a good businessman, right? I know how to make money, right? But suffering is one way that God deflates our ego. And it humbles us. And it makes us realize how dependent we really are on God, right? It's human nature to ignore God when everything's going well, when there's no glitches. And instead of noticing the small glitches in your day, you just curse or you have road rage or you say, what an idiot that guy is or that lady is. Why can't you get her act together and get pay the cashier, like, you know, get herself ready before, because I've got an appointment, right? But instead, if we use it to humble ourselves, and the second reason is that suffering sensitizes us to the needs of others. When we've been through something, and we know what it feels like, we can be much more open-hearted open-handed and compassionate to other people's pain. I was explaining this to somebody, some one of my coaching buddies, you know, she was trying to figure out her niche. What could she be a professional coach on? I said to her, what have you suffered in your life? What have you gone through in your life? Oh, well, my parents divorced when I was young. My mother has schizophrenia. My daughter had suicidation. This is all one person, okay? Lovely person. And my kids all had learning disabilities. That was hard. I said, there's your niche. There's your niches. Pick one. Pick two if you like. You have to, you're an expert. Are you, have you read everything on it? Do you know everything about it? No, but that's your expertise. Because wherever you've been challenged and suffered, look there. God is telling you, you can help others because of what you've been through. You're an expert. And you know what I said to her? Nobody wants me to be coaching them in those areas because I don't know anything about them. I never went through them. You, they want to talk to. You, they want to tell. Because they feel like you're in their club, right? I remember the first time I had Yisker. You know, and as a kid, you always wonder when they send you out of the shul, what are they doing in there, right? Like, are there ghosts flying around? Like, what's going on? You know, that's what I thought as a kid, you know? And now all of a sudden, I'm in the club. And not only am I in the club, but I'm thinking, good, everybody else get out of here. Because you don't know what we've been through. You don't understand loss. You don't know what it's like. I don't want you in here talking or chatting or giggling while I'm doing yisker. Get out. But that's the point, 
right? Is when you've been through it, you understand it. And you're the only one, somebody else, right? They'll say, boy, am I glad to see you. Forget about all those other superficial people who don't understand what I've been through, right? And don't say the right things. And even if you say the wrong things, it doesn't matter because you've been through it, right? Okay, so it's sensitive. The third thing is it causes us to pray. And these prayers and tears of someone who is suffering are considered the most powerful prayers, right? We know that three of the imahos were barren. They couldn't have children. It says about Sarah that it was impossible biologically. She had no womb. Three of the four mothers who are supposed to spawn the Jewish people, the chosen people, the people that God wants to spread the message of monotheism to. And the, the rabbis teach us, why did God do this? Because he loves the prayers of tzaddikim. He loves the tears of those who call out to him, who realize their total dependency on Hashem and cut through all of the hubris of hum, human, humankind because there is no atheist in a foxhole. Because when no one else can help me, right, that's where I go. And these prayers, even if they're not answered, are the most powerful prayers because they have an effect on the world. And secondly, they may be answered later in another way because we have this idea that no prayer, no sincere prayer is ever lost, right? A person says, but I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and they didn't get well and they were sick and they died. Where were you, God? But the Jewish idea is that prayer did not get lost. This is the decree. This is what had to happen for only reasons that God is privy to. But those prayers that you prayed, who knows where they're going to go and who they're going to save. Maybe not in this generation, maybe in the next generation. Right? We don't know. We're getting close to the end of the class. It looks like this is going to be a two-part class. Okay? Because um, there's so much to say, obviously. But I want to end with an incredible story that I, somebody sent me on my WhatsApp. You know, one of these meaningful minutes, even though it was a 10-minute story. I'll try to make it briefer. And um, it's a story that, uh, a true story that just happened. And it's a story that illustrates the idea of Ein Od Melvado. There's nobody else but you, Hashem. And this idea, which I actually experienced when, my, when I went through my mother's illness and eventual death, this idea that God is the kol yachol. Kol everything, yachol. He can do anything and everything. There is nothing that he cannot do. Right? Remember Hanina Bendosa who said, the same God that says fire can burn can also say vinegar can burn. He created nature. He created the rules of nature. If he wants, he can turn them on their heads, which is what we call a miracle, right? The doctors are scratching their heads. They're saying this doesn't make sense. The historians are scratching their heads saying the Jewish people don't make sense, right? 
the philosophers, the thinkers are scratching their heads saying we've tried. The anti-Semites are scratching their heads. The greatest empires tried to destroy us, scratching their heads saying this doesn't make sense. And now we're all scratching our heads with COVID saying this doesn't make sense. We're so smart. We had everything under control. What's going on? Well, maybe God's giving us a huge nudge as a people, as, it, as humanity, as mankind. I can clean up your world in an instant. Just leave it alone for a bit, right? Okay, so let's hear this story. So this is a story told by Rabbi Duvi Ben Susan. And it's about his father. His father, obviously elderly, uh, was, had a terrible diabetes. And all of the doctors in Jersey, I wish I could say it with a New York accent like he has, all the doctors in Jersey, they all said, amputate, 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 okay? We can't do anything for him. We got to amputate. Anyway, he already had two toes of his, uh, of his one foot amputated. They were hoping that that would open up the blood flow, okay? It didn't work. They had six stents in his leg from his groin down to his ankle, which were also supposed to open up the blood flow. There was no blood flow. Nothing was happening. The doctors all agreed. The only thing we can do is amputate. Anyway, he's a nice religious guy. And he starts thinking to himself, listen, Hashem, you can do everything. Hashem, we cannot do anything. We can't do anything. We can't, we don't, we can't, we can't change this. We, we, we can't do anything. Hashem, you know, we can't even rely on the doctors because they're just people. The only one that we can rely on is you, Hashem, because you are the kol yachom. You are the one who's capable of anything. And what this rabbi explains is the more a person believes this, the more miracles they see in their life. I'm not going to go into my mother's story. Maybe I'll bring it in next week. But I saw very clearly with my mother too. Something just all of a sudden changed. And like my mother said, get me out of here. You're trying to kill me. And then she went on to live a year and three months more. And literally they were killing her in the hospital. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a Canadian story. I wrote a, a story on H.com about it. You can Google it. I'm actually on H.com right now. Uh, the sto- a story of my childhood. I'm center and front right now. It's called uh, You're Going to Hell, Growing Up in a Small Canadian Jewish Town. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to the bottom, you can comment. There's a lot of interesting comments from Christians and Jews alike who grew up in small towns. And, um, and you can look for one more article for me, which is actually about my mother's experience, which is very similar to this story or somewhat similar. Anyway, so what happened is this rabbi says, that's it. I only believe in you, Hashem. I don't believe in the doctors. I don't believe in anything. I'm going to rely totally on you, whatever you say. You know, if you, and he said, you know, he said to himself, you know what? If I want help from Hashem, then I need to go out and help other people. Measure for measure, right? I want Hashem to make a miracle. I want him to help me. So I'm going to, anybody who asks me for anything, I'm going to be there for them as much as I can with all of my efforts. I'm going to try and help other people as much as I can. 
okay? So he said, of course, we also dovened like crazy, right? And in the dovening, we, we poured our hearts out. We said, Hashem, we can't do anything. Only you can do anything, right? And promised Hashem, if you help my father, I'm going to help anyone who comes to help me. And we gave tzedakah, the whole family, right? Teshuvah, tefillah, and tzedakah ma'avirin et roa gezera. Tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah can annul a terrible decree. So our whole family was giving tzedakah. We were introspecting. What can we do better? How can we do better? And we were asking everybody to daven, right? Not just our family, but in Israel, we were getting in touch with rabbis, holy rabbis and yeshivas and asking them to daven for our father. Meanwhile, what happens? A rabbi in Israel said to us, go get a second opinion. Go get another opinion in Manhattan. Find a doctor there, an expert, and ask him what to do. They end up finding this doctor whose name is Dr. Tadrosh, Tadrosh, a non-Jew. Okay? Dr. Tadrosh tells them, listen, I'm not promising anything, but I actually just got this new tool, this new medical tool that I've never used before. And I'm going to operate on your father. And I'm going to use this tool to open up one of the stents and see what happens. Anyways, he goes into the operation. He opens up and he comes out. He, he says to them, this is a long shot. And he comes out of the operation five hours later. And he says to this Rabbi Ben Susan, I just want you to know. This was only God. We're good. He said, when I went in there with my tool, I applied it to the first stent and it opened up like butter. And he said, wow, look at that. He said, let me try the second one. Went to the second one, opened up like butter. Anyway, he continued to do the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, all the way from the groin down to the ankle. And there was a flow of blood that was so huge that he said to them, as a matter of fact, I'm even worried that there's too much blood. And we're going to have to put your father on some antibiotics in case of infection. But blood we got. And it's flowing through this leg. Anyway. When this happened, you can imagine this rabbi said, oh my goodness, now I have to keep my word. Now I have to do my part, right? Hashem did his miracle. He helped me. Now I got to do whatever I can do for anybody who asked me for help. Anyway, listen to this. This is incredible. He says, so, you know, of course we all get mail. And of course we all get mail asking for tzedakah. And he says it happened like right after his father you know, came out of this surgery. And of course, now the leg doesn't have to be amputated. He gets this letter from this uh, organization called Torah Communications. And it's a, it's a organization that has Shireen classes. And he said years and years ago, he used to listen to the classes. He used to download them in his car. And he used to listen to them when he drive back and forth from Lakewood to Brooklyn or whatever. And he said, so here on the top, it says Torah Communications. But then it basically goes on to talk about this rabbi who's in trouble. And the name of the rabbi 
is the rabbi who was his Rosh Yeshiva when he was a kid 27 years earlier in Israel, in the yeshiva that he studied at. And this rabbi, he, you know, would visit whenever he'd go to Israel. He still had a very close connection to him. Anyway, the letter had said that this rabbi, who was one of the speakers that gives Shirim in this Torah communications, it says that unfortunately his son-in-law just died from corona and left behind a wife and 10 children. And that the burden of the financial support has fallen on this Rosh Hashiva. So anything you can do to help, please send. So, you know, he's reading the letter and it goes on and it actually mentions the name of the son-in-law who was Nifter, who died. And his name is Rav Chaim, meaning life, Tadrosh, the same name as the non-Jewish doctor, whose name he said he'd never heard before, never associated with a Jewish name, was the same name the son-in-law, Chaim Tadrosh, of the doctor who was able to save his father's leg. I know, are we getting goosebumps or what? OMG, right? Anyway, he says, what are the chances of that? What are the chances of that? Okay, the doctor that just worked on my father, that I promised I'm going to help anyone who asks me. He said, this was a wink from Hashem. Hashem was saying, I stepped out for you. I hope you're going to continue to step out for me to help, to help my people, to do everything you can do when somebody comes knocking on your door for something. And he ends by saying, sometimes Hashem extends us credit. He just wants to hear that we believe. He just wants to know that we rely on him and we can't do anything about it. The doctors can't do anything. When we get to that point where we just say, I don't know. I don't know. I've tried with my money. I've tried with the best doctors. I've tried, traveled the world. I've spoken to everybody. I give up. Hashem, you're the only one who can do it. I need a miracle. I know you can do it. I really believe that you're the kol yachol. This rabbi said, God's saying, give me an ounce of amuna, of true, real amuna, where you don't Say, yeah, I believe, but you know what? I also got the best doctors. Yeah, I believe, but you know what? I can pay for the best doctors. Yeah, I believe, but you know what? I'm very smart. We're going to figure this out. No, I want an ounce of true emuna. You can't do anything. It's all up to me. Only I can make it happen when it looks like there's no other way, Right? Give me an ounce of Amuna and I'm going to open up for you. And basically the story ends with this quote, when Hashem is with you, nothing is unbelievable. Okay, ladies, we're going to end there today. Thank you so much for listening. Any comments?